1: Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott.
3: Ahoy! I'm ben. I'm kidding. Hi, I'm Ben. Ahoy! Oh, <laughs> I didn't expect that at all. Oh, man. Yeah, we're going to have a lot of unexpected stuff in this episode. Uh, as of course you know, we are accompanied by our super producer, uh, Dylan Fagan. We'll see which name he ends up with today, and as well as Noel the Madman Brown. I don't know if Noel approves of me insisting on calling him the Madman. What? But. But it's... It, it feels cool. He hasn't ever really like voiced any objection, you know? <laughs> right. Has he? So, no, I don't think I, I, so. I
2: guess then he consents.
3: <laughs> I guess then, too. Yeah, we'll we'll have to we'll have to follow up on that. Uh, if Scott, you don't see me for like four days or something, mm-hmm. just put out some feelers. I know you've got. Uh, I know you've got a detective soul so just few, make uh, sure
2: a few connections around town yeah, yeah.
3: make sure no disaster occurred to oh, me oh disaster okay well that leads into today's topic how fortuitous King of segues over here yeah
2: <laughs> nice work <laughs> nice work but uh, this one uh, is a listener suggestion mm-hmm. and it's a good one i really uh i i you know i know it's a, a disaster a lot of these uh are are rel- i don't know if i should say that relatively benign is that a good way to say it i mean. They could have been much worse. Uh, could have, that's a better way to say it. Could have been much worse. And and so they were interesting to read about. So I really appreciated this one. Uh, something that I hadn't really investigated too much prior to this. Mm-hmm. But uh, this was a suggestion from a listener. His name is Sean F. And Sean wrote in uh, a couple of times. In fact, this is kind of a rarity here. Uh, Sean wrote in once uh, back in July of 2015, or, May, or 2016, rather, um, wanted to hear the tale of the, I uh, remember the, the buried Ferrari Dino. The one that turned up in that Uh Los Angeles backyard? Yeah. He wrote in and suggested that, and then also wrote in and suggested today's topic, which is um, the MV Cougar Ace. And he says, if you're not familiar, it's a gigantic auto carrier ship that lost stability and rolled over in the Pacific with... um, He lists a number of cars here, but we'll surprise you with that in a moment. A lot of cars on board, all Mazdas, back in 2006... The crew rescue and salvage of the ship is a great story, and and Sean is exactly right. It's an incredible story, and there's so many levels to this that um, you could dig into. You can re- you dig into just the salvage operation, right? You could dig into uh, Mazda's version of this. You mm-hmm. know what happened? Um, all maritime disasters, because there's more than um, more than just this one. Of course, mm-hmm. you know with with automobiles featured, I guess, or, or lost
3: at sea in, in a way. You um, could also you could also look at. Some of the maritime aspects of it, when on an earlier episode we did on, could I travel the world by cargo ship? Yeah. We looked at this vast, invisible to most people, this vast network that's invisible to most people, which is absolutely the backbone of the global economy yeah
2: it's happening all the time all around us and we just don't get to see what really happens here we don't get to see the nuts and bolts of the whole thing so um one one quick thing that i want to mention here and i don't we'll spend a little bit of time on this not not a lot but we'll get into the cougar ace in detail in a moment um i started looking back at some of these uh these other large-scale car disasters at sea you know, to see what uh, see what would come up, and some of these go all the way back. Uh, there's, there's probably more than this. These are the ones that come up in, in a quick search. Um, if you go back to 1941, you know, right right at the beginning of World War II, uh, you'll find that you know there was a, a ship that sunk in the Red Sea. And it was down there. It's been down there for 76 years now. It's still down there. But it's loaded with this huge array of of um, old military vehicles, you know, like Bedford trucks and armored vehicles and Norton and BSA motorcycles and, of course, guns and ammunition and all that. Um, it was sunk during World War II, uh, right, at the, right at the very beginning of World War II, really. Um, but it was sunk while it was still anchored. And guess who discovered this thing back in 1956 or rediscovered it? Who is it? Jacques Cousteau. Jacques Cousteau. Jacques Cousteau rediscovered this wreck, and and again, it has like, I think it was like 120 vehicles on board or something like that. It's a huge. A huge old uh, cargo ship that was carrying uh, materials or mi- military me- vehicles, you know, a tra- transport vehicle from Glasgow to Alexandria, Egypt, and it was sunk in port on the way. This is the SS Thistle That's the one, yeah, exactly. So that's one example, and you know, you can still dive on this on this today. And if you want to read about, you know, the Thistle Gorm, uh, you can read about it in Jacques Cousteau's book because he describes, you know, again rediscovering this in 1956 in his book called "The Living Sea." Um, so that's just one example, and that's again. One hundred and twenty vehicles. That's not a huge scale disaster like what we're talking yeah. about um, uh, today. But there's others. Let's see. In nineteen eighty, there was a, uh, a car ferry boat that sunk. So this isn't a manufacturer um, disaster. This is one that happened to uh, you know just private citizens that were on a car right. ferry. Uh, there's something like oh, this is the one that has one hundred and twenty vehicles. Maybe the uh, maybe the, the Thistle Gorm doesn't have one hundred and twenty, but um, this is the one. It's called the, uh, the, the Zenobia, and it's in Cyprus. And this one sunk during her maiden voyage back in June of 1980. And this is, of course, what three, four decades later at this point, um, all of those cars are still down there. You can still go down and uh, you know dive on this wreck if you wanted to and see you know exactly what's happening there. They didn't recover any of those vehicles; they left them there. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2012, I'm just skipping around all over the place. But in 2012, yeah. there's the Baltic Ace disaster, and this is a big one. These were all Mitsubishi cars that were on board. So again, you know. For, more than fourteen hundred vehicles were, were lost. Eleven sailors, again, in fifteen minutes. This is happening in the uh, in the, nor- the North Sea. So really cold. It's December fifth in the North Sea, and in, in two thousand twelve, you can imagine, you know, that you couldn't last too long in the water in that situation. Right. So um, the uh, the rescue effort, the the salvage effort for this whole thing cost something like 73 million dollars to bring this ship back up and all of its contents because they were worried about um, um, oil spilling into the ocean right and it was of course you know at this point so uh, unfortunately this boat was only insured for 55 million dollars and the the operation to ret- retrieve it cost 73 million so huge loss for the company um, in that in that situation money wise and there's um, uh, so many more of these let's see 2015 oh 2015 uh, so this is really recent. There was a fifty-three million dollar uh, accident that happened at sea, where there were again all these luxury cars that were um, scrapped because they were on a, a cargo ship that simply tipped over to one side. It was tilted to one side, mm-hmm. and this happens a lot. We'll we'll find out uh, you know what happens when that when that situation occurs. But fifty-three million U.S. dollars of, um, of vehicles. This is uh, BMWs, Minis. Um, there were some construction equipment on board. Even, there was one single Rolls Royce, uh, Wraith on board that, you know, has its own huge estimate of, of, uh, how much that's worth. Yeah. Uh, like 1,200 Jaguar sports cars. Again, there was something like 1,300 vehicles on board the ship when it, when it tipped over, destroying everything on board. So, um, again, this, this happens all over the place. Right. More um, than you think. Yeah, more than you would think. So, um, Anyways, and, oh, you know what? There's one other one that we should mention that's not a maritime disaster. There was one uh, just last summer, in, or at the end of the year, I guess. It was in December of 2016, and there were BMWs that were on a train. that were uh, They were coming out of, where was it? It was Spartansburg in South Carolina. And they were headed to the port, I believe, in, I want to say it was Charlotte, I think, that they were headed to. And, oh, I'm sorry, not Charlotte. It was Charleston that they uh-huh. were headed to. And, uh, the train derailed. There were like 12 cars that had 10 cars on each. And, uh, somewhere, I think it was somewhere in Blair, South Carolina, is where this thing derailed. All the vehicles on board, of course, were destroyed. These, uh, these BMWs, there's something like 120 cars. Um Just a, a huge accident that included mostly the BMW X line of vehicles, so all versions of that, the X3, the X4, X5, X6. Yeah. And I think there might even have been some X7s on board, but that would have been early, early on in production, so maybe not. We'll have to, you know, dig into it further and see what was on board there. But um, nobody on the train was hurt. You know, there was only a two-man crew, and they got off without injury, so that was good. Um, but, yeah, these, these types of things are happening Every few years, you'll hear about these major disasters yeah. that occur where there are hundreds, if not thousands, of vehicles lost. And the, the top one of these, the, the, the biggest one that we were able to find and mm-hmm. that uh, that Sean pointed out, is a vehicle called, or a, a cargo ship called
3: the Cougar Ace. Yeah. Built in Japan in 1993, this monstrous cargo ship, uh, it, it's 55,328 tons of 654.6 feet long. Uh, th- this massive ship is one of the biggest car carriers in the world, it can tote more than 5,000 cars in one go. 5,000 vehicles are are a possibility on this ship. Now, it's got 14 decks.
2: That's how it carries that many vehicles. And I think at the time uh, that we're going to be talking about here, there was a a crew of about 23 crew members. Right. Uh, And this would have been back around, what, this is a long time ago, Yeah. uh, relatively speaking, in 2006, I believe, is Mm -hmm. when the accident happened. And Mm -hmm. this article that we're going to kind of follow through here, it's from Car and Driver. Mm-hmm. And it's from 2008, so they kind of already know the aftermath of what had happened and, and what's going on. But this is an interesting tale about the the, the accident itself, mm-hmm. the salvage of the vehicles, and and the uh, and the ship itself, and then what kind of the the um, well, what happens after that, really? Because there's a, there's a lot of ways that Mazda could have handled this, right? So where do you want
3: to begin? Maybe we should start, you know, when it launched. How about that? Sounds good. All right, the Cougar Ace sailed out of Hiroshima in the middle of July in 2006 they had their cargo very near capacity right mm-hmm. and 4703 mazdas they were all 2007 model year vehicles ah here's a little side note though
2: there were 109 other vehicles on board that hardly ever get mentioned yeah and and <laughs> I don't, we don't even know what they are it's just the the focus is always on these mazda vehicles so 4703 brand new mazda vehicles Plus 109 other vehicles. That's a huge number, by the way.
3: Yes, they say they're small commercial trucks, but let me let me just add something here, sure. Scott. Do you think that someone really doesn't know? I'm doing air quotes here, folks. Whoosh, whoosh, doesn't yeah. know that uh, what what the manufacturer of those trucks would be, or was it something that they didn't want? to? to have in the news. No, oh, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, it could be that, uh, you know, they were you know, like,
2: uh, not gray market cars, but maybe cars that were, oh, well, you know, we can probably speculate about this Military all applications. Could be.
3: I, I don't know.
2: I, I kind of doubt anything that nefarious is going I on. Do I, I I like, think it's probably just, you know, that they were shipping some cargo trucks or something.
3: Maybe that's it. Well, here's what happened. Uh, wh- whatever the identity of those uh, small commercial truck manufacturers may have been, uh on july 23rd the uh ship was near the aleutians heading toward the alaskan coast and then down toward these ports on the west coast of north america there were three that mazda had sea was relatively calm Mm -hmm. you know weather was good yeah uh the engine by the way huge beast. Did we talk about cargo ship engines in a previous podcast? Maybe, but uh, we probably didn't give them enough due, really. We talked about some of the world's largest engines I know for sure. Enormous diesel engines. Yeah, diesel engines. Yeah, this this thing has... uh, Scott, do you want to give them the horsepower? Well, it's
2: it's just under 16,000 horsepower. So it's massive, massive engine. I mean, you can imagine what it takes to push you know a ship like this that's, what, 660 feet long yeah. and, and weighs, what was it, 500 and some odd tons um, through the water. Plus, plus, you know, the five, uh, well, well, the five, almost 5,000 cars, right? Right. All right, so enormous engines, but so what went wrong here? What what happened? You think it would have run aground or something like that? That's not the case. What happened was, and I'm I'm going to read most of this here, but yeah, here's what happened. Before sailing into American waters, the U.S. has a law that requires a ship's ballast tanks to be purged of seawater that's taken on in foreign lands to avoid fouling local marine environments with non-native species. So you don't want to introduce a species that is not normally in those waters to that water because you never know the consequences, right?
3: Yeah, and that makes – I know that might sound a little bit crazy for people, but if you live in an area with invasive species, then you know how problematic they can be. Like, Scott, you used to live a lot closer to the Great Lakes and Asian carp is a huge problem there, yeah, right? and
2: zebra mussels, and, you know, there's there's just this this huge, uh, a lot of concerns, I guess. Yeah, you know, so the, the,
3: the, yeah, this isn't some namby-pamby feel-good thing. There's a real reason to have this purge, so it has to happen, but that is where the story takes a turn. Where does it lead? We'll find out right after a word from our sponsor.
2: Ben, we're back, and Ben, we were just leaving off where they were dumping some of this this ballast water, yeah, right? Yeah. And this thing has eleven stabilization tanks on board, just so you understand that you know there's these different compartments that can be loaded and unloaded with water, so that they can take on the right amount of water, keep it level, and you know, um, I guess everything on keel. Maybe is that the right way to say that? Yeah, I, I hope. <laughs> on an I, even keel. On an even keel. That's probably the better way to say it. So. Whether it was a human, you know, error like a you know human error or mechanical failure, they're not say they haven't said yet. But that afternoon, the water from the starboard ballast tanks was drained without being refilled simultaneously with fresh seawater. So. The top-heavy ship started to keel over onto its port side. Now, the port side, of course, is the left side of the, of the ship. If you're looking from the, you know, across the bow, I guess, yeah. at the bow, the right side would be the starboard side. So, if we throw these terms in there, if that's, that's what they mean, I think most everybody gets that. If
3: you're facing, if you're sitting there at the center of the ship, you're facing the front. Then the port is the left side. Correct. That's right.
2: So, um, it starts to instantly uh, keel over onto its port side, and it's not good for a, a cargo ship that's carrying you know a, a, a load like this, a very heavy load. It gets very top heavy, uh, so everything that wasn't strapped down. Now the cars were strapped down. That's the that's sort of the good that's part important. at this point. That, that's important right now. You're right, um, but all the crew members started. I mean, this is it's tipping to the point where they're starting to slide along the decks, and you yeah. know, uh, for fear of of going off the edge. Um, again, 23 crew members were aboard. Lucky for them, however, there was just one person that broke the had a broken leg. The steward, I think, broke his leg. Yeah. Uh, the, but the crew put, was able to put on survival gear and, and, you know, get to the top on the starboard side. So they're, again, they're at the very top of the ship. And then they had to wait 23 hours until the U.S. Coast Guard and Alaska Air National Guard heli- helicopters could then lift them to safety. Now, that seems like a long time, but you gotta remember how desolate this area is. Well, yeah. Uh, it's, it's way out there. And for the Coast Guard to reach them, it probably took that long. I mean, the call went out immediately. You know, they act immediately. It takes them that long to coordinate and figure out where
3: they are and, you know, how to get to them. And if the, you know, if the vehicle – so, okay, the the ship is listing close to a right angle. By the time. So they are hanging out on the side of the hull. You know what I mean? Yeah, out in the elements, like out and, you know, just exposed to everything out and, there. And this is, this is interesting, if we could take a quick diversion, if you're okay with it. Oh, yeah. There's a great article – on our parent website, How Stuff Works, uh, which answers the question about how long can you, about how long somebody can survive adrift in the ocean. Oh, man. Yeah. It's depressing uh, because really the biggest factor is going to be whether you are on something, you know, uh, even if it's just whatever that lady was clinging to in the Titanic or if you are (laughs) the Titanic, the film, uh, or if you are to drift by yourself you know with some light, with a life vest or some I guess a fun doodle or some water wings mm-hmm. or something, hopefully that won't happen. but, uh, but the, the thing is that these guys were very, very fortunate because if they had been just adrift, even with the survival suits that they put on, uh, it's a very, very dangerous situation, especially even if the weather's good, we have to consider how far north they are. You know, you mentioned when uh, when those wreck that wreck occurred in the North Sea, that water at that stage makes hyperthermia, hypothermia one of the primary concerns. Yeah, you know, in the movies, it's always about starvation or dehydration, but if you sink there and you're adrift somewhere. Uh, there's a very real chance that you won't be alive long enough to have those problems.
2: It depends where you are on the globe right yeah I mean that's exactly. uh, that's
3: the whole thing like what latitude are you at really yeah.
2: that's, uh, that's that's what it comes down so, to
3: yeah so they were they were pretty fortunate actually uh, to to get there and you know I'm also wondering how they put the call out.
2: You know, yeah, because you would have to climb back down to or up to the captain's area or the, you know, somewhere where they're able to. Maybe they had
3: uh, emergency radio on the suit or something?
2: But possibly, yeah. yeah. But, uh, well, I wouldn't think it'd be str- something strong enough to send out a, a distress signal, though. That's mostly, you That's know, a like, good point. you know, ship to ship or person to person communication on the ship, probably, I would think. But anyways, we can, uh, we can guess about that all yeah, day. Right, right, But the, but the, 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 uh, the reality here was that it wasn't leaking anything into the ocean. You know, it wasn't, mm-hmm. uh, dumping fuel or anything like that. The cars weren't leaking. And it was slowly taking on water. That's why it had yeah. just capsized. So it's drifting, yeah. right? It's drifting at this point. And they decide that, you know, the, the Coast Guard is going to just monitor this. They're going to leave a cutter nearby. They're going to monitor this ship because it is drifting. And after five days, the ship had drifted about 100 miles closer to the Aleutians. So it's getting closer and closer. They know they have to do something with it. You know, you can't just leave it like this. But here's the problem. There's still 4,700 Mazdas dangling by ropes and straps inside yeah. this vehicle. And... You know, Mazda doesn't know a whole lot about this. In fact, they don't. They hardly know what's going on at all. I mean, they did say that the Coast Guard had a pretty good website that had a lot of updated information that they could access, but you know, the the, the ship owner, which is a a company called Osk, which I believe is out of Japan, um, the Osk Lines, had contacted Mazda in Japan, and then Mazda Japan um, had called. Uh, you know, the Mazda USA, uh, you know, uh, branch, I guess, and, and tried to let them know what's going on because they're the ones that are going to be receiving these vehicles and they're wondering where the ship is and, you know, what's going yeah. on. So, again, really, really early on in the, uh, in the process here, but, um, almost immediately they get, um, a guy named Robert Davis involved with this. And this is Mazda North America's senior vice president in product, de- in product development and quality. And this guy will come up later on in the story as well. So so Robert Davis is a main character at this point. Uh, but almost immediately, they're, they're talking about salvaging this thing. You know, Like, what are we going to do to salvage this thing? Because the, the ship isn't sunk. Right. It's, it's still usable yeah um but they've got all these cars on board what are they going to do with them and and of course that sends their mind reeling like what what, what's going to be the condition of these vehicles when we find them they are strapped down well
3: right they didn't come tumbling out but still still you know think of it the same way as flood damage Mm -hmm. right and you know that flood damage will ruin a vehicle even if it's brand new oh absolutely and and
2: well, we'll get into this in just a moment here. I, I think soon, I hope. But yeah. um, well, actually, you know, there's still some more information to, to cover here. But, yeah, uh, yeah. we'll talk about what happens to these cars that, that um, they're not supposed to be at that angle for that long. That's, let's just put it that. That's way. another one. Yeah. So okay, <laughs> this
3: is this is something that's fascinating because it gets into the little known but immensely risky and possibly uh, profoundly profitable business of salvage. Yeah. At sea. So. Yeah. Uh, there's a company out of Florida. They're called Titan Salvage. They were called in. Yeah. And they were uh, going to be paid. The deal was, and it went through Lloyd's Insurance of London, a.k.a. the guys who will insure anything, including the posteriors of celebrities yeah. and
2: stuff. Legs of people on uh, on famous talk shows.
3: Yeah. Right, right. Hands of pianists, whatever. They're, yeah. they're down for it. Um, They had this agreement for the insurance that said okay titan salvage if you are able to save this cargo ship you will have more than 10 million dollars in your pocket
2: 10 million dollars and you know what there's something that was said just a moment ago that i can't let slip in oh man i i have to say it what i'm, I'm like do? i'm like a 10 year old oh what? you said <laughs> hang on i'll get this right you said pianist
3: Is it that how you're supposed to pronounce it? Uh, I say it, pianist.
2: (laughs) You say pianist? I say it, pianist.
3: (laughs) I know it's like a kid when I say it, but but it's funny. I always chuckle when I say that word. That's like, uh, did you say say crayon or crayon growing up? (laughs) I guess I said crayon. No way. Yeah. Oh, man. You know, it's funny. When we moved here to
2: the South, we had a, a friend that said the word crown. And I thought she was saying crayon because she was saying crayon. (laughs) <laughs> and I couldn't quite i couldn't pick it up I couldn't pick up what she was saying, like her kid had to wear it was her birthday at school or yeah, something, yeah. and she was wearing like
3: this golden crayon and I was like
2: what, a golden crown? how's she wearing a golden crayon
3: yeah it's uh it's strange we got we got some uh pronunciation guides from some other people uh not just in Australia of course, but in in different parts of the world, and one of the ones that I always remember is when I went to Massachusetts for the first time as a kid. There's a town in Massachusetts called Worcester. It is not spelled. Like, the the spelling is... You know how, like, Chinese characters don't have anything to do with the pronunciation mm-hmm. of the word in Mandarin or Cantonese? Sure. That's how Worcester is. Yeah. And no offense to anybody who lives there. It's a great town, but uh, this one guy pretty much called me an idiot and i was a child at the time mind Mm -hmm. you when when he he said well that's not the name of this you know it's like hey can you tell me how to get to war sister or something (laughs) and he looked at me like i had just you know grown a a pair of horns or something and then uh or, or like just loudly farted or something and then essentially said you know you knucklehead, but a much meaner version of that word, uh, knucklehead, you're never going to get there because that's not a real place. Oh, come on. Do a kid, he says <laughs> yeah. this? Okay. Yeah. Well, that's not that's but, a, that's uh, unfair. But pronunciations are important. And honestly, I can't believe you say penis. <laughs> it's a penis, right? I can say that. That's a... All right. Let's move on. This is okay. So
2: Lloyd's will ensure.
3: (laughs) We'll see if we keep that whole bit. I don't know. Lloyd's will ensure anything pretty much. Yeah. And the thing is that, yes, Titan salvage does get more than $10 million if they pull off this rescue mission. But what happens if they fail? Well, they get nothing.
2: I mean, nothing at all. Not even, uh, not even a uh, well. You tried, not you know, even a pat an on the back, Boy, yeah. <laughs> and a sympathy card. <laughs> no, nothing <laughs> like that. So uh, it's big, big stakes for these guys, right? So they're uh, they have to go in on board, and it's really dangerous what they have to do. They have to you know check out everything, and um, there's a lot of. Ma- I'll tell you, there's a an article that uh, that goes in depth into the salvage effort and everything involved with it. It's really, really, um, really well done, really well written. It's it's from a um, a blog site called wired.com and I bet a lot of people know of the wired site. Um if you search for a a story called High Tech Cowboys of the Deep Seas, The Race to Save the Cougar Ace, and if you look up that uh, that article, you will find a a lengthy description of the salvage effort and everything that went on there. Um but just to of a a general Version of it is that, you know, they had to go on board, they had to rappel down through the vehicles on, you know, using climbing gear. Yeah. Uh, they had to do a lot of really intense math calculations. Only four of them. Yeah, four people to figure out, um, you know, how much water it had taken on, how much they had to pump out, how much they had to add to certain parts of the tanks mm-hmm. in order to write to this thing again, because the fear was that, uh, it was going to, go the opposite direction. Like, the swing would be too great. Once they righted the ship, they knew they could do that, get it back up to, uh, you know, on level. Right. The problem was, if they go a little bit too far, then that whole load shifts again the other direction, and with the water that they've just added, it could make it completely capsized. So, it could go com- a complete swing the opp- opposite direction. Yeah,
3: I like to think and of it sim- fast. Yeah, similar to uh, a kayak, you know, with shifting load. Yeah. Like, uh, one of the first things they teach you with, with the when you're in a kayak is what to do if you end up upside down yeah yeah Uh, how to write yourself how to write yourself but
2: that can't happen in this case and so it's really like
3: one shot yeah that's (laughs) it and it's really really dangerous
2: now i know it happens all kind of slow but um once it starts to right itself there's a point where it would tip over fast and that's the uh that's the danger so again that article that i just mentioned is something that will uh
3: if, if that type of thing intrigues you you'll like that yeah so uh here's you mentioned it earlier, Scott, and this is something I want to emphasize because this could be an action movie. So these four guys have to repel in there. They have no light, but the light they bring, right? Mm-hmm. Repelling is already, repelling down in darkness like this is already going to be tricky business. But the thing is, as you said, they have to go past the vehicles. That have been hanging in these straps. This is on June thirtieth, so this has been a while, yeah. and uh, we don't know what the condition of those that those straps are because you know they're built to last. But this is an unusual circumstance, and the worst part is that if one strap screws up and if one car falls, depending on its position, it's unless it's at like the very far furthest side closest to the port, it could trigger a domino effect of all these other Mazdas falling. And death by Mazda avalanche is not the way most people want to go. Oh, can you imagine? That would be awful. I mean,
2: it would be like a a pinball effect, I guess. You know, it would, uh, or is that the right way to say it? Maybe not. Maybe, uh, uh, again, the avalanche is probably the best way to say it. But can you imagine if you were down there and and they started to collapse on top of you? I mean, you wouldn't have more than a a second to even think about
3: it. Yeah, you wouldn't even be able to say, like, well, at least they're not used cars. (laughs) <laughs> well, there were a couple of times in that article
2: that I mentioned that yeah. uh, um, th- that uh, they did accidentally step on a strap, and it caused you know a creaking noise and a car to swing a little bit, yeah, and they were nervous and you know some some tense situations. But yeah. there was one uh, there was one death that occurred, and it wasn't exactly what you would expect. It was a guy by the name of Marty Johnson. He was forty years old. He was a naval architect, and he was down there to try to figure out how much water needed to come in and out of those tanks. And I guess he wasn't a uh, an experienced climber. And when they were departing the Cougar race for... Uh, the tugboat that was over there to, you know, bring them back to the main ship. Um, again, this is about a year after the initial accident. So this is right. like July 31st of the, of the following year of 2007. Yeah. Um, he fell when he was trying to walk across the top of the ship, the starboard side of the ship. And he fell 80 feet along the ship's stern. He hit his head on a um, a stanchion, a bullard, on his way down. It's like a big post. Yeah. And so he had this, you know, major head trauma. And then he fell all the way down and he landed on one of the ship's winches that, you know, mm-hmm. brings in the the, um, the lines. And I guess he, he lived a short time, but he died about an hour later. And again, that article that I mentioned mm-hmm. is about how they recovered him and, and, you know, tried to save his life. They tried CPR, et cetera. But
3: it's a really interesting story. Uh, tragic, but interesting. And the another, of course, it, you know, of course it's tragic. Another even more unfortunate aspect of him being one of the, uh, of him being the casualty is that, as you said, he was responsible for the model, which, you know, the... The um, the math that you talked about the equations they had to make in order to know how much water goes off and how much goes on and where and how and when he was pretty accurate too and he was accurate yeah. so they um, they had senior naval architect a fellow named Phil Reed also working at Titan um,
2: well he stepped w- in right he
3: stepped in and he looked at Johnson's original model and calculations and then they prepped and they began actually pumping water in water out and here's something we should mention
2: right now is that this would have been far better off for mazda had the ship just gone to the bottom of the sea it really would have now i mean i know that the people involved you know of course we want the people to get off and and normally they do in these situations there's enough time for them to you know hit the lifeboats and get out and you know escape but what i'm saying is money wise i guess. Mm-hmm. If let's say that everybody evacuated it was all safe and then the ship you know was floundering around out there something. yeah suddenly like just a little bit too much water came on board and it just went to the bottom. It would be far better off for Mazda because now they're stuck with again all these cars there's there's 4700 cars that are dangling by by straps in the middle of the ocean. Right. Um
1: you're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack slack is where work happens with all your people data and information in one ai powered place start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites or build an automation with workflow builder to take routine tasks off your plate no coding required grow your business in slack visit slack.com to get started
0: if you use paper you're a human but if you choose paper you're a paper
2: And there's a a rundown of exactly what was on board. They were all 2007 model year vehicles. If you want to get an idea of what was there, there were were 2,804 Mazda 3s, 1,329 CX-7s, 295 MX-5s, 214 RX-8s, which, oh man, a lot of people would love to have those. Fifty six Mazda Fives and five Mazda Speed Sixes. So that's the uh, the kind of the rundown. Plus the other one hundred nine that we didn't know what you know the makes and models were.
3: Yeah, the um, mysterious top yeah, secret. So, <laughs> no,
2: they, yeah, they kind of were, I guess, right. But but so Mazda already is thinking about what's going to happen here because a lot of people are calling Mazda saying, "Well, right. I wonder. I'm right. waiting for my new Mazda. It's not on that ship, is it?" And they said, "Well." We can't answer 5,000 or, or let's say, 20,000 people because, you know, a lot of them weren't on this ship. Right, right. They, they, you know, the only 4,700 were on here. But um, so what we're going to do is we're going to post all the VINs on our website, you know, MazdaUSA.com. Mm-hmm. And if that VIN appears on your bill of sale, then, you know, that's one of the vehicles. And... Uh, you know, we'll have another vehicle. We we'll have another plan in place, I guess. But a right. lot of people were really concerned that they were going to end up with a car that had been in the shipwreck mm-hmm. and not
3: been told that it was in the shipwreck. So here's, you know, I I know folks that what Scott just said at the beginning might sound kind of counterintuitive. That it would have maybe been better for Mazda if the ship had sank. Uh, and because here's why, and it makes sense. Mazda has insurance. Mazda would be able to say. Well, that's a total loss. Thank goodness we have insurance. Yeah. But now... A lot of it, by the way. A lot of
2: it. Yeah. How much? $103 million. So they would have had a nice fat check for $103 million. Instead, they're going to have to front the bill for doing something
3: with these vehicles. And these... Okay, we have more information about the straps. These were nylon deck straps, right? Yeah. And when uh, when this cargo ship is... Listing at that almost ninety degree angle, what's happening is they're not just hanging there statically; they're moving with the current as the ship is drifting, continually stretching those straps. Yeah. So sixty-eight had already uh, been damaged somehow. They'd all between breaking free, getting banged up by cars that broke free and fell down, or suffering you know massive water damage. Sixty-eight cars already were in a bad way
2: yeah exactly right so uh, you know they know that they've got this situation where they've got 68 that they're going to at least have to cover they don't know the condition of the others um so what they start doing is they um they start testing back at the mazda R and D department they they put uh some of these vehicles on jigs at that level at that 70 degree angle mm-hmm. to find out what the uh, what the effects are going to be so what they were most concerned about at this point was the electrolyte and the batteries. They thought on the sides, you know, it's not all that bad, but with the added motion of the sea, as you mentioned, that kind of, mm-hmm. they say salt shaker motion, I guess, that up and down motion, um, that can add a lot of damage to these vehicles. So they're concerned about the durability of everything from the seals and the powertrains that, that didn't have the lubricants that they're supposed to have to keep them, uh, you know, soft. Uh, they're worried about, you know, electronic sensors and all kinds of stuff. The lubricants that, you know, are getting to places in the vehicles that they're not supposed to be in, and and again, they're escaping areas that they that they should be in. So,
1: mm-hmm.
2: so many concerns, really. And not just that, I mean, all the stresses that could be caused um, on the, the, the cars the, the bodies, I guess, themselves, because a lot of them are the unibody design. Right. So, you know, they're not going to, or actually all of them are unibody design. Um, so, a lot of the damage that... You, you couldn't see i guess what's happening there as well or at least they thought it was happening because these straps are, are in um uh you know they have tie down hooks that they attach to the vehicles when they're shipping them and so they're pulling on the cars with this immense force you know they're stretching they're they're tugging they're twisting yeah. it's just it's a really really bad situation so when you start to think about well they can't just test On this angle, this 70-degree angle, they also have to consider that the cars were all parked at different angles on the deck. So some are going to be tilted to the side, some are going to be tilted backwards, some are going to be tilted forwards. Uh, It's it's this huge jumble of of situations. Not only that, it's it's not the same make and model. I'm sorry, it's not the same model. Mm -hmm. So... You know, it, it would make a difference. You know, whether there's a, a Mazda Speed Six there versus a, um, a, you know, a CX-7 or something. You know, it's it's all different. Uh, you know, between the different powertrains and the different uh, positioning of them. It, there's so many different varieties of of problems that could arise yeah. from this that uh, it's just it
3: just totally confuses you when you think about it. So they take the Ace to Portland, Oregon in September. They they tow it there. Uh, that is the closest place that has repair facilities to get the ship up and running and also has enough room to park all of these poor, unfortunate monsters. Yes, yeah, 50 acres of property. So they've got 50 acres of property. and
2: They're going to park all these cars that look like they're brand new. On this on this property, except for the sixty eighth, of course, that tumbled free yeah. or whatever. Um, but here's the, the the weird thing that's happened. So so customers are calling not only to check to see if you know their vehicle was on board already, you know, uh-huh. like the one that they already purchased, but they're also calling to say, "Hey, I heard you might have some uh, some cheap Mazda yeah. for sale. Can I get a deal? Yeah, I want a deal, right? But not just them. And this is maybe one of the more interesting angles. Filmmakers wanted to buy them to wreck them in movies. Yeah. There were people that wanted them for trade schools, you know, for service training, which makes perfect sense, right? Fire departments wanted them to practice extractions in. Um, people thought, you know, the MX5s and RX8s could go racing maybe, you know, they could be track day cars only, they'd never see the, uh, you know, the, the roads. Never have to be road legal. Exactly, and you know, they're gonna gut them anyways and put in whatever they wanted, so. But the problem with that was that, um, you know, eventually, some of those cars. There's a chance that they could make their way back out to public roads, if not the whole vehicle, parts of the vehicle. And, and Mazda um, almost immediately. Oh, that, that Davis guy. He remembered. You know, we mentioned uh, um, oh, what was his name? His first name Davis. Uh, Robert Davis. Uh huh. Um, he's coming back into the story because he said there was like a ten minute meeting that they had about this, and they, they almost immediately unanimously decided that there's no way any of these vehicles could ever. Uh make it out onto the highways at any in any acceptable way for Mazda to be covered just know. because of the various possible risks exactly right. they had to completely destroy them so that not a single part of these things is ever going to exist now there were uh, there were a couple of exceptions. I think there were a few uh components that were sent to. Um, trade schools, I believe, and I, I think I've got a note on that in just a moment. But um,
3: they essentially decided to recycle all of
2: them. Right? Yeah, yeah. There were a few dozen drivetrain components that went to trade schools, but other every other part was completely destroyed. So uh, th- th- this is a, again a, a, an unbelievably difficult decision for them to make, I'm sure. And in ways, you know, of course, they knew in their heart what was right. You know, they knew they knew they had to destroy these so it didn't end up in somebody's hands and you yeah. know, it's become a lemon, right? Mm-hmm. But they also knew that. Um, instead of getting that $103 million insurance check that they were going to be paying for the destruction of all these
3: cars, and it was going to take years to do. And they were taking a bath. Yeah. So the Ace arrives at Portland, right, we said in September. Mm-hmm. It was almost two years later, a year and seven months later, when they had about 1,000 Mazdas that looked like they were ready to sell. Yeah. Uh, and, the, you know, uh, in these neat rows of four in one of these gigantic empty lots, uh, they realized that they were recycling every single thing. And as Davis said, there's there's something you alluded to about the position of the vehicles just being on their side, in mm-hmm. addition to everything else we've talked about. What's that? Well, it's that the, the reason they re- had to recycle everything, including the cars that were untouched and survived in their straps, didn't even taste the water, right? It's because their concern was that the salt shaker motion of the, that's the phrase you use, yeah, salt shaker motion of the ocean, that's a tough one, huh? The that salt is. shaker motion of the ocean. You got it. All right. Took a few tries, but we got it. Uh, anyway, that that unique motion was messing with the electrolyte and the batteries and causing uh, damage. And that's that's one thing they say worried them the most. So they had to recycle all of these, even the ones that look showroom ready, because as you had mentioned earlier, Scott, and as we had talked about earlier, when it comes down to it, there are certain things they would need to test that they just couldn't test. And, you know, you can't risk when you're already in damage control mode. You, yeah. can't, you can't risk being the company that's that gets pinned with something like Maz- family of four dies in fiery auto wreck after Mazda sells shipwreck car. Oh yeah, because that, that would
2: happen eventually, right? I mean, and they would never do
3: that. No, you know? no, exactly. But they had pr- they
2: had concerns like all the airbags in these vehicles. They couldn't even crush them until they had deployed all the airbags. Now you wouldn't think that's a huge deal, you know? They could uh, you know tear them out or whatever, but it's time consuming to tear them all out. So they found it a better solution to um, simply activate all the airbags at one time in, in any given vehicle. So they figured out these ways to do this. Now, they had um, a system set up where these guys would go around, and they did this for months on end. Yeah, a disassembly Yeah, they would go from vehicle to vehicle, and they would trigger all these... Ba- now, some of these, remember, have six airbags. So... Um, a couple of guys would walk around with, like, a, you know, the, this little trolley system that had yeah. a car battery, um, a modified version of the electronic control module for each type of car that they encountered, and then a trigger box that was built by Mazda engineers in Japan. And this trigger mechanism could be plugged into um, just one main wiring harness, and it was, it varied per, you know, by vehicle. But, right. um, just for example, on a Mazda 3, the guys would pull out the center cup console, you know, where the cup holders are and they would uh, access this connector they would hook up the car contraption that they're carrying around and then <laughs> they would yell what? out fire in the hole and then they would ignite this or push the switch and it would ignite no. all pop, of the pop, airbags pop, 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 pop. yeah all six of the airbags would go off all at once to blow the windows out of the car and then they're on to the next vehicle. And that was it. And one after the other, day after day, for months on end, these guys would do nothing but that. And that was like stage one of this whole process. The next thing that they would do then, stage two, I guess, would be uh, when it was time for each of these vehicles to be crushed. Because that was the uh, not the end goal, because there's more to it than that. But mm-hmm. stage two would be where they would um, bring each of these vehicles. They would kind of uh, use this this great big John Deere tractor to just really... Uh, <laughs> Hastily pull them around in the lot or lift them and, and place them wherever they needed them. Um, you know, not much care given there because why? Why bother? Right. They're going to yeah. crush. It's like a junkyard car at this point. Um, so they would put these up on a rack and then they would drill holes in the fuel tank, the transmission pan, the brake reservoir, and then drain each of those fluids so that you know those are those are completely removed. And then the wheels and tires were then removed, and each tire and alloy wheel got a half inch hole drilled in them to prevent the reuse. So they would never be reconditioned in any way you can't patch
3: these uh these holes that they would put this in is like the automotive version of sewing the ground with salt
2: yeah it's exactly right it's like there's no way there's coming back from they're coming back from this and so then these steel wheels were then mangled in what they called almost like a log splitter, mm-hmm. I guess, for metal. And, of course, the lug nuts went into this big plastic bucket that would itself wind up in the trunk of a car that was headed for recycling. So those would be crushed. And and just absolutely no part was to be taken off of these cars at all. But that's not the final step. There's still more to it than this. And you know what? We should take another break from our sponsor before we talk about that.
4: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: And we're back. So these cars are crushed. Components are purposefully mangled, uh, brought beyond the point of any use ever. And one by one, they're loaded into that overbuilt portable crusher.
2: Yep, exactly right. Well, there's a okay, there's a couple steps here. Though. Yeah, there's a couple. Okay,
3: steps. so there's one thing that they
2: would do is they from the from, you know, the area where they were draining all the fluids yeah, and, yeah. and mangling them really, they would then stack them in this truck that took four at a time, you know, because they, they're just stacked yeah. one on top of the other. He would take them about a mile down the road to a place that was um uh this this big crusher I guess and the crusher was like another step in the whole in the whole process the crusher then would use something like 2400 psi of hydraulic pressure to, mm-hmm. to destroy or flatten the cars rather and then those were stacked five high and um I think what, what, like five feet tall or something like yeah. that' so it's a, it's a, it's a so really short they, they compact them very very small right an operation called PCC Pacific car crushing but that's still not the final step because nope. down the road these were loaded onto a truck and then down the road they went to a place called schnitzer steel
3: and this is where we find out how much these vehicles ended up being worth
2: yeah that's right and these are all maybe uh based on speculation I guess. yeah these, yeah. these, these, these accounts are, right but, at best yeah this is what an, a normal vehicle like a husk of a vehicle would be worth about 250 dollars that's what the scrap value of the cars, you know, that they're going to load into um, th- this device, this thing, that uh, this really cool thing mm-hmm. uh, that's just down the road from where they are. Have you ever
3: you have you, you're aware of that show Pawn Stars? Have you ever seen it? Yes. This to me seems to be one of those. The best I can do is two fifty moments.
2: I, I feel like that too. They're making a pile of money on this because the scrap value has got to be worth more than two hundred fifty dollars. Yeah. But that's what they're getting paid, or or ballpark in that in that range. They won't say exactly what it was worth. But just down the road, um, on the Willamette River, is something called the Texas Shredder. And the Texas Shredder was the final destination for every single one of these vehicles. And, again, you said it was like it was an almost two-year process to get all the vehicles into this mm-hmm. Texas Shredder. But um, this thing is incredible to watch. I've seen it in action, uh, you know, on video. There's an online yeah. site that shows Shredders in action. This one in particular is pretty bad. It's really, really cool. It's um, a blue and yellow, they call it a blue and yellow monster that's
3: so violent that Dante might have created a tenth circle of hell just for this device. It is powered by a 7,000-horsepower electric motor housed in a, get this, constantly vibrating cinder block building. <laughs> yeah, that's
2: right. It, said, it says that uh, this thing has 26 1,000-pound hammers. that They're made of manganese, by the way, that spin at 450 RPM and just shatter everything and anything into pieces no bigger than a clenched fist. And I've seen it working. I completely believe that you know no piece gets it's out of there. Than, to yeah, see that thing of action. but but that's how Mazda assured that none of these vehicles were going to escape any of any of this, and none of them were going to end up on the road and you know mm. become a liability
3: for them. I guess. And just just the, I, I highly recommend. I think I can speak for both of us here, Scott. We highly recommend that you check this out uh, on the video. This thing, this monster, is fed by three cranes.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's con- so it's constantly being fed material. I think you know it's one of those things where if it's running, it better be op- it better be shredding something, right? I mean, because I, th- I bet it's so expensive to operate this thing yeah. that uh, that, it, that it probably is not worth it to have it on even for a minute if it's not op- if it's not really shredding something,
3: doing some work. Here's a weird thing though that I think gets gets a little philosophical, so mm-hmm. which is all right. So after after it's shredded, right? Yeah. Uh, said they're pieces that are about the size of a fist at most. Sure. Uh, Then they're separated into ferrous, non-ferrous material, as you said. Mm -hmm. So 80% of the ferrous stuff goes to a steel plant in McMinnville, and it's recycled into rebar, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. But that other 20%, it's really interesting, it goes overseas, which means it is not likely, it is not plausible but it is possible that that same material could be reincarnated in a way into another Mazda. I feel very circle of life right now. (laughs) Yeah, that's (laughs) a a possibility. You're right. It's not a probability. It's not a plausibility. Mm -hmm. It's just like... A lottery ticket. Yeah, it could. It could happen, I guess. And it would just
2: be part of some component that you have in your yeah, vehicle. But, yeah. uh, but it's an interesting thought still. I mean, really, it, it could. Um, so, finally, we're, we're talking about, you know, May 6th of, what, 2000, uh, 2008 is mm-hmm. when the final vehicle is going through this uh, the mm-hmm. Texas Shredder. And... Um, I don't know. It just it, this is a long tale to tell. I understand that. I mean, it's a long story, but there's a, there's more to it than we're talking about. You know, the salvage effort alone is twice as long as what we've described here today. I mean, there's a, there's a lot to that, and I, I really do encourage you to go check out that that article on Wired.com. Um, but I was thinking about this afterwards, after reading this whole story of how long it took and you know what it yeah. took. Oh, well, one quick note before we even talk about this. Um, the Cougar Ace is back on the water again, and it's still shipping cars even for Mazda. It's still operational. They, they got it seaworthy again, and it's, uh, it's back functional, and, um, you know, so far so good. No problem since, uh, you know, it's been recommissioned. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we haven't heard it in the newspaper recently, so that's good news, I guess. Um, but I was thinking about this, and I, I was wondering if, if this is maybe not the cheapest solution for Mazda. You know, they could have taken a different way out. They could have, um, you know, sold the ones that weren't damaged as, you know, um, uh, well, you know, I guess maybe, could you still call it, could they be salvage titles? I don't know. In, in a way, they could have sold a lot of those as brand new vehicles still. I think. They could have gotten away with it. They could have said, we've inspected them, everything seems to work out fine. But... It wouldn't have been the best thing to do. It wasn't the honorable thing to do, right? And they did the honorable thing. They they they, you know, they paid the whole bill for crushing and destroying these cars. It was years long in in, in the making, but they did the honorable thing here. They they made the right decision, in my opinion.
3: You know, I feel like they invested in their reputation, yeah. so I don't, I don't see that kind of thing. So, and maybe that's why I'm not in charge of Mazda. But I don't see that kind of thing as losing money as much as I see it, that that lost money, as an investment in saying, you know, to consumers, to peers in the marketplace, this is saying, if something like this happens, which is, by the way, totally not our fault, we will do the right thing. Yeah. You know, and I I think that... Um, it's admirable. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good word. I think it speaks very highly to the character of the company. Uh, there is one other thing, though that i want to it's it's barely related okay i have i also have something that's also barely related you have something okay yeah um all right i'll i'll go first okay uh the idea of derelict or sinking or abandoned ships is fascinating to me and it's been you know for a long time uh braving the open ocean has been one of the most rewarding, dangerous, and strangest of human endeavors. Treasure hunters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Treasure hunters, explorers, criminals, you name it. Yeah. Uh, the I, I used to really, as a kid, be fascinated by stories of like the Mary Celeste, right, or the legend of the Flying Dutchman. Yeah, but, same here. But what we forget is the ocean is, is, this is a family show, so I'll say it this way. The ocean is so freaking large that things still get lost very easily. You want to disappear, go to the ocean. And it happens in the modern day. There was a Russian vessel uh, or, uh, built in Yugoslavia. Uh, it's called the MV Lubov Orlova. And apologies to all our Russian listeners for my butchering of that. Uh, Have you heard of this one? I have not. It was built in 1976. It was taken out of service in 2010 and sat in Newfoundland for two years. They were trying to decommission it. But eventually, somehow, it broke free and it just roamed the North Atlantic as a ghost ship. Oh, no way. And no one's really sure what happened to it. I think as of... Today it's believed to have been sunk because people haven't seen it. But again, the ocean's so big, Uh, the ship has you know become kind of this modern legend. And you know we talk about the idea of expenses here. Uh, On February twenty eighth of two thousand thirteen, like they just put out a warning. People and just put out a warning for smaller vessels to say like, hey, watch out for this russian ghost ship this uncrewed ship that this, could uh, that's could... just floating around and when oh. when i had heard about this you know one of the things i want was thinking about immediately was like somebody should go get it and hop on it but what they're doing if they get that unless it's legally salvage is it is it stealing government property hmm. i don't know i don't know is it um is it Legally taking on the responsibility for the expensive decommissioning process, and you'd be like a pirate. Yeah, kind of at that yeah. point, yeah. Do you just live on it till it sinks? <laughs> I mean, that seems kind of cool. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but the reason people feel that it may have sank is because it has a automatic kind of a dead hand system called an emergency position indicating radio beacon, uh, or with the tremendously smooth acronym of an EPIRB, uh, <laughs> it, the Irish Irish media said that they received a notice from this. Well, it's still in the international waters. It's very important. But these kind of beacons turn on when the device is exposed to water. Oh. And this makes experts think it may have sunk, which I really hope didn't happen because Maybe, like, the thought of it just kind of floating around out there,
2: like a ghost ship.
3: Right. Because
2: and, of the stories that you read when you were a kid.
3: Right. And so there are rumors that go around, but they're from less and less reputable places. So yeah. I I don't know, but if you are out there and you have seen this ghost ship, please <laughs> join you know, me. For a life on the high seas,
2: I like the thought that it's still out there too. That's an interesting thought. I I, I enjoy
3: mysteries like that. So what's uh what's what's well, yours?
2: Man, mine's not as exciting as yours is. Oh, now, don't I guess say uh, that. But, uh, <laughs> so I was reading a bunch of stuff, you know, and of course one thing that I was reading was about um, all the cars that had you know gone off the side of the road into you know like these muddy creeks and stuff, yeah. and, and uh, you know turned up bodies that had been missing for you know decades. That
3: blew my mind. Only not all of those can be accidents. Yeah,
2: well, it seems like that doesn't it? But there are you know numerous news stories of that. And, and uh, so I read that, but that's not the only thing. I was also reading about uh, cars that were in the Katrina hurricane here in the United States uh-huh. and then they were bought by salvage companies, yeah, and then not scrapped, but then they were sold to Latin America. So a lot of Katrina cars ended up in Latin America. Now, oh, that's terrible. Man. I, I know it is, but uh, but it happened and there were there were tales of people that had purchased you know specific vehicles that they knew came from these Katrina regions and um, you know that had been flooded over the roof line. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they would pay, let's say they paid $7,000 for a new Mini that was, uh you know, a, a decent price. They knew that there was something wrong with it. They knew that it was coming from a salvage company, so they didn't know exactly what had happened. And I think yeah. it said something like, um, the one example I read said something like there was water flow damage. And that's, uh, this car was submerged for maybe a week, you know, or two weeks or more, um, you know, while, while this uh, mm-hmm. the flood water was receded. Um so that's an outright lie there but so let's say the guy bought it for $7,000 he would pay an additional you know 5 or 6 or $7,000 to ship it down to Bolivia and yeah. then in Bolivia they find out well there's some problems with it here uh, we're going to have to clean this out it's going to be $13,000 in damages that we Jeez. have to cover here and then not only that once you get that going then there's more things that show up later on you know from the Ooh. rust issues and um it just was ongoing and they said that you know even so this, this buyer in Bolivia of, of this one particular red Mini that I read about, uh, said that, you know, to purchase a brand new BMW Mini from, from BMW and have it shipped to Bolivia was still so expensive that this was still worth it to him to have to deal with all the headaches. Now, headaches were, uh, you know, that's something additionally you would have to deal with with the new car, but cost wise, yeah. it was still cost wise effective for him to buy a salvage vehicle and have it shipped there. So, again, I was just surprised to hear that any of the Katrina cars, Made it outside the United States, and we know we can we can track where they were or where they are rather, and uh, and some of the problems that are that are arising from this even even now what more than a decade later. Yeah, it's just an interesting thought. I, I thought all those had just been done away with. I thought that you know the the word was out and everybody knew to watch for them.
3: Yeah, and we can't. This uh, look, this is another excellent opportunity for us to emphasize that you should never, ever, ever, ever buy a flood damaged car. No, no. No, it's a terrible idea. Never, never do it. No. And this, you know, this is this is from a guy who's injured himself doing his own stunt work. So if I'm not even gonna do it, then you certainly <laughs> should shouldn't do it either. Sage advice, man Well uh speaking of Sage stuff, Sean, thank you so much for this excellent recommendation. Now I know uh we I, I feel like there's so much more that we could explore related to this ghost ships uh the weird international unethical trade of flood cars yeah i mean that would be like we're we're like interpool uh but you know for flood cars <laughs> <laughs> hey we haven't given dylan his nickname yet we haven't we haven't well see so, let's see there's the baltic ace and the cougar ace so how about ace yeah that's a good one dylan Dilton ace fagan yeah yeah and, uh, Noel Maz- Mazda, Brown. <laughs> nah, nah, yeah, no, that uh, one still needs work. No, uh, yeah. Noel the ghost ship, Brown. Oh, that's not bad. That's weird though. How do you, how would, how would you pull that? I think he's got the swagger to pull it off. They call me the ghost ship. <laughs> that's how you'd say it. You wouldn't say I'm <laughs> yeah. Noel the ghost ship, Brown. You'd say yeah. they call, call me the ghost, the ghost ship. ship. Like why? I hope you never have to find out. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, take a closer look at this lake. Don't get out of the car. <laughs> I, I'm I'm kidding. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'd like to hear uh, from you what, uh, what stories... I, I want to hear from anybody who has experience on the high seas. You know, naval experience, merchant marine experience. Um, salvage experience. Salvage experience. That would be amazing. And then also, you know, if you've just taken some weird cruises. I've never been on a cruise. I'm very curious about those. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can check us out on Facebook and Twitter stay tuned for next week when we have a uh, brand new episode coming out and as always our best ideas come from you so if you feel so inclined you can drop us a line uh, where we are CarStuffHSW at the various social medias and if you think that social media stuff is for the birds for the sinking Mazdas then uh, cut it out entirely inclined I'm just not getting your joke Oh, I guess that does make sense. Like the deck was inclined? I did not
2: get that one. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm just probably making it up. I'm hearing things where there aren't
3: things. (laughs) Well, uh, this, this thing is, uh, this thing is not a rumor. This is a fact. You can email us directly. We are carstuff at howstuffworks.com.
1: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack
0: Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success.
3: From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you.